0: Well, as you might know, um, pastor and author Tim Keller passed into glory this month, Um, and our very own Andrew Shaughnessy uh, wrote Keller's obituary that was published in By faith Magazine. It's um, really informative and well-written. There, uh, Andrew notes that Keller was born in Allentown, Pennsylvania in 1950. He became a Christian during college through uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and Soon after that, just became a voracious reader of the Christian classics that ultimately led uh, to his theological uh, education. And following seminary, he began pastoring West Hopewell Church in Hopewell, Virginia, a congregation where he served for nine years. And then in 1989, the Kellers decided to make this consequential move to New York City to plant a church. And in Keller's obituary, Andrew notes that the Big Apple was more dangerous back then, a gritty mission field beset by crime, money, and skeptics. Less than 1% of the population identified as evangelical Christians at the time. 1989, Redeemer started with 50 members, and some 10 years plus later, uh, they grew to 3,000. Uh, people that were a part of the Redeemer community. We're on like year eight here at Oaks Parish, so we're getting close to those sorts of numbers. It's an understatement uh, to say that Keller's legacy is profound. Through the ministry of Redeemer Church, a number of initiatives were launched around church planting, uh, faith and work, mercy ministry, not only for Manhattan, but the entire global community. Keller, of course, authored a number of books, including Reason for God, which is an introduction for skeptics, in particular to Christianity, Prodigal God, most recently Forgive, which is a powerful book on the nature of biblical forgiveness. Some have called him the C.S. Lewis of our generation. And for many of us, uh, we drank the Keller Kool-Aid, right, he inspired a generation of urban church planners who recognized through sociological research that cities had an outsized influence on the broader culture. Keller had a particular knack for understanding presuppositional thought. Presuppositional examination moves past mere action and goes under the hood to examine that thinking that's generating the action. And that was Keller's magic. It was like the stuff of Jedis, you know. These are not the droids you're looking for sort of thing. One technique and one way that he did this was to talk about two different ways of living. There was a ditch on the right side of the road and a ditch on the left side of the road, but the gospel in Jesus Christ provides us with an imaginative third way of living. And it just so happens this morning that we find all sorts of pairs In Acts chapter 19 that gives us an imaginative vision for a third way of living. So in some sense, what I'm about to say in Acts 19 is an ode to Tim Keller. Uh, In other ways, it reveals why the community of the church is so central to the life of faith, which is why we're studying Acts in the first place. So we're going to first find two groups of disciples That's going to lead us to the discovery of two kinds of gods. And then finally, we're going to look at two ways of living that give us this imagination for a third way. So let me pray and just ask Jesus to go before us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have spoken in these scriptures, and these scriptures speak to us still. So we pray, give us eyes to see and ears to hear We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, first in Acts 19, we find two groups of disciples. The first group is described as the disciples of John the Baptist. And we find out that Apollos, one of the up-and-coming leaders in the church that we were introduced to last week in Acts 19, has moved from Ephesus across the Aegean Sea to Corinth, while Paul has done just the opposite. He's left Corinth in Acts 18, traveled to a variety of towns, including Jerusalem. And now he's back in Ephesus. And someone last week requested a map. And when you make requests here at Oaks Parish for sermons, you get it. You get your requests. So here's a map. You can kind of see Paul's orbit. He's moving counterclockwise in this loop. And people talk about, you know, three, maybe four of Paul's missionary journeys It really amounts to this. He's just going in orbit counterclockwise like over and over and over again uh, across the Mediterranean. And eventually he spins out of it to Rome, which is where we'll find him at the end of the book of Acts. It's in Ephesus that Paul runs into some disciples. And we find out that they are people who began following Jesus really through the ministry of John the Baptist. And you might remember the ministry of John the Baptist. John was a prophet living out in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming a message of preparation for the Jewish Messiah. And he ate locusts and honey, kind of bedraggled clothing. He called people to reorient their heart toward God, receive water baptism as symbolic of that reorientation. He was something akin to Jimi Hendrix playing the national anthem at Woodstock at 9 a.m., I mean, it was a thing. It was arresting. It was a voice. It was a countercultural moment. And for us here in our modern era, he was an out there kind of guy. But for first century Judaism, there existed this fervor and this angst among the Jewish people. God had made promises to redeem his people from exile, but the people of God were living under the jackboot of Rome it was anything but deliverance and so in the midst of that restlessness this societal angst john came along and declared prepare the way of the lord and people responded and so here we find 12 disciples of john in ephesus and and some would say that these 12 disciples were the people that formed the nucleus of the church in Ephesus, they give us a glimpse into the unfolding nature of early Christianity. Their hearts were prepared for Messiah, but they had not yet heard that Jesus of Nazareth was this long awaited Savior. And so here we find Paul sharing with them the fulfillment of all of their longing, which is Jesus, and they trust in Jesus. They trust in Jesus as the true king of their life. They're baptized with water into this life. God pours out his Holy Spirit into, his, into their soul, sharing his life with them. And then they begin giving evidence of this life with God. They begin prophesying. They begin speaking of language in languages that could advance the gospel among the nations. That's the first group, the disciples of John the Baptist. And then Luke brings to our attention a second group of disciples known as the sons of Siva. Paul had performed a number of extraordinary miracles in Ephesus. And then the text tells us that he came across a group of itinerant Jewish exorcists. What a title. Sounds like a West Coast biker gang that he's running into here. And and the sons of Siva are thinking that Paul was just another traveling showman in the first century in the empire. And so they call upon the name of Jesus because they saw Paul perform this trick. They call upon the name of Jesus to heal some people with evil spirits. And when the Bible talks about people with evil spirits, we don't quite know what they're talking about. It's perhaps some... Uh, form of spiritual darkness maybe it's it's people with a psychological disorder a mental health condition we're not exactly sure but they call upon the name of Jesus just as they saw with Paul and and as as uh as we read earlier the evil spirits say to them in reply Jesus I know Paul I know but who are you and then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, and so overpowered them that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. It creates this very comical moment where we see the sheer raw power of the name of Jesus. And all of this sounds strange to us in Western culture, but we're really the only culture in human history that has divorced itself from the idea of an enchanted universe. That there might be forces at play beyond what we can observe or what we can measure. You know, we we often think that we're much too rationalistic for that sort of idea. Why did Luke tell the story of these two groups side by side? Well, they show us that the human heart is never neutral. Neutral. The human heart is never neutral. We always are given the choice to worship capital G God, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, the God that is Jesus. Or we can worship lowercase g gods. All of these other things that are out there in culture that our heart becomes attached to. The sons of Siva, for example, as we see in this text, they were dedicated to the the lowercase g, God of power. And I think they show us something interesting, even for the church. They call upon the name of Jesus, and yet what they truly worship is power. It's tragic how the gods of culture can often be smuggled into the community of faith. The disciples of John show us something different. They show us that when we look to Jesus in our life as God, as our Lord, as our Savior, that a genuine power becomes manifest in our life. It's not magic tricks. It's not fleeting. It's real. And if we follow the allegiances of our heart, we will then discover the God that we truly worship. Which brings us to the second pairing that we find in this passage. Two kinds of gods. After hearing about Paul's travel aspirations in verse 21 through 22, which ultimately includes the city of Rome where we will end in the book of Acts, Luke returns to the story unfolding in Ephesus. And it's the story ultimately in the back half of Acts 19 of two kinds of gods. In verse 23, Luke records, About that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. This is what Christianity was being called at the time, the way. Why was this a disturbance? Well, Ephesus was home to the great temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so that you might envision what this looked like, I have a slide, that's what it looked like. Its size was shorter, but much wider than a football field, so it was about, approximately, just a little bit larger than a football field. It consisted of an inner bird that was surrounded by a colonnade of 127 columns. And the temple included opulent decoration, artwork, sculptures depicting various mythological scenes, and most important, the grand statue of Artemis, which was at the center. Artemis is her Roman name, Diana, her Greek name. She was the goddess of hunting, the wilderness, childbirth, the moon. According to myth, she was the twin sister of Apollo, and she was first born Artemis immediately assisted her mother during Apollo's birth. And so Artemis is really seen in Greco-Roman culture as this nourishing source of life, strength, independence, protection. And each year, people from across the empire, as we saw in the text, would travel to Ephesus, make a pilgrimage, and they would pay homage to Artemis, perhaps make a sacrifice pray a prayer, celebrate all that she was doing in their life. And at the heart of it all was this group of silversmith, who made little silver shrines, little trinkets, little souvenirs for people to take home. Um, that was difficult to say, little silver shrines of silversmiths. It's like, it's like Susie had sold seashells by the seashore, however that goes. Um, that's what they were doing here, little silver shrines sold to tourists. And yet a competing reality is going on in Ephesus. The name of Jesus is beginning to spread. It's beginning to have power in the city. People are turning away from the polytheism of the pantheon, and they're turning to a monotheism, a specific allegiance and devotion to Jesus. And if we reflect on this passage, I think we're more like those who made pilgrimage to the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, than we like to believe. For all of us, there is a a polytheism polytheism at work in our heart. And the symbolism of Artemis is not lost on the reader of Acts. Who do we look look to? Who, Who do we really look to for life, for strength, for protection? And so these two kinds of gods... Artemis and Jesus, they ultimately direct us to two ways of living. Wendell Berry, in his essay entitled Healing, it's really kind of a poem, he says that the teachers are everywhere. What is wanted is a learner. Teachers are everywhere. What is wanted is a learner. That's profound. If you think about our life, you can ask yourself the question, what is life teaching me about what's really going on in my heart? About who I'm truly dedicated to? Is it, is it Jesus or is it somebody else? So many times, just in our spirit of independence, we think we've got life figured out. We just kind of run roughshod over our heart. We're on to the next thing. But what is wanted is a learner. And so notice the difference in the way of life between Artemis and Jesus. This guy Demetrius, one of the silversmiths, he worshipped at the temple of Artemis. He was probably the president of the local guild. And in his mind, the one providing him with security and life, Artemis, is being threatened by the gospel. And notice where that worship of Artemis leads. It leads to fear to anxiety, to anger. In the broader city, the broader culture, it's a culture that's filled with panic, with chaos, with turmoil. And this is how life always is with false gods. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, says that idols give us a sense of being in control and we can locate them by looking at our nightmares what do we fear most? That's fascinating. It's like this, this way of life with the false gods. It's it's almost teaching us to reject it. The statue of Artemis that sat in the center of the temple was nothing more than a stone that, according to myth, had fallen out of the sky. It was like a divine meteorite. But it never spoke. It never really heard the prayers that were lifted up. It could never really induce change. Artemis was always requiring sacrifice and pilgrimage, but never providing certainty. And interestingly enough, the temple of Artemis today is nothing more than a few pillars in a swamp. That's the way it is with the false gods. In contrast, Paul worshiped at the temple that is Jesus. And notice how authors like the author of Hebrews talk about the temple that is Jesus. That God came here on earth, had ministry among us, gave his life sacrificially on the cross, was resurrected in the power of the Spirit, ascended in that victory to the right hand of God, where he dwells in a heavenly tabernacle. And if we find our life in Jesus, we find our life there. He is our temple. Artemis, according to mythology, was a divine being that acted like a temperamental human, almost like a child. But in contrast, Jesus was a human being who was the very nature of God. The the, the type of of God that we would expect. The The type of God that is in our ideal imagination. And Jesus In Jesus, God sacrificed himself in order that we might dwell with him secure. And because this is the nature of Jesus, the word of the Lord was at work throughout Acts 19. And those who trusted in his name, their life was filled with his spirit. They gained the ability to turn away from darkness. They experienced peace in the middle of a culture of chaos. I want us to think about that right now. Because here in this city and across our nation, we have experienced our fair share of a culture in chaos. And yet here, Paul and these early Christians are at peace amidst it all. So this gives us an imaginative third way for living. Acts 19 shows us that Christians in the first century lived lives both of radical submission And radical distinction because Jesus is the only true living God who can truly save. Radical submission. Radical distinction. Two sides kind of of the same coin here. These early Christians in Ephesus, they lived lives of radical submission. And I realize as I say the word submission, I'm using a curse word here in Portland. The disciples of John the Baptist were incomplete until they fully submitted to Jesus. And this was signified in their water baptism and in the giving of the Spirit where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were sharing their love with these disciples and therefore in that love, they were made complete. As I mentioned on several occasions, our culture here in Oregon is largely influenced by by this independent spirit that developed on the Oregon Trail. We want to keep Portland weird because you had to be pretty weird to load your family up on a wagon and travel 3,000 miles across country knowing that most of your family, if not all of them, probably weren't going to make it here. That was a pretty weird thing to do. I was reminded of this history of independence last week in the town of Fossil, Oregon. On our way to the Painted Hills, my friend John, who was in town, and I, we visited the Wheeler County Cultural Museum. I don't know how many of you have ever visited the Wheeler County Cultural Museum in the town of Fossil, Oregon, but I highly recommend it to you. It includes an array of fossils as well as cultural memorabilia, Uh, from the past 100-plus years in Wheeler County. And we're going through this fairly large Wheeler County Cultural Museum, and I turned the corner, and there was a whole wall dedicated to an organization in Wheeler County called ABATE. And ABATE is an acronym that stands for American Bikers Against Totalitarian Enactments. A biker gang that's also a militia that I'm fairly certain is unhappy with decisions being made in Salem. It's interesting, though. It's interesting seeing that, that spirit of independence in rural Oregon. And while urban Portland can differ greatly, the goddess in the temple is the same. The worship of individuality and independence And so when it comes to our lifestyle, how we use our money, how we use our resources, our spiritual practice, our sexuality, what it means to be a man or a woman, marriage, commitment to the church, we are culturally conditioned to believe that we are not complete unless we're able to fulfill our individual desires. But that's not what we see in the disciples of John the Baptist. They were complete when they found themselves in submission to Christ because it was there that they were complete in the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So where might you be trying to find a sense of wholeness outside of Christ this morning? Well, these Christians in Ephesus, they not only live lives of radical submission, but they finally live lives of radical distinction. The sons of Siva attempted to use the name of Jesus to gain power for themselves. And of course, power is a gigantic temple here in American culture that has also greatly influenced the American church. In a sense, we evaluate the success of the church by how much power we think we have. And this desire for power has led to toxicity amongst church leaders and created toxic church cultures. And that same desire for power has led at least parts of the American church to believe that unless Christians have political power, then all is lost. And this worship of power in our country has ultimately led American Christians to broken relationships, to being lost in faith, alienation from the church, and living with a sense of shocking fear for our future as if Jesus isn't reigning over the universe. N.T. Wright describes Ephesus as a similar culture. He says it was a center of power, magic power, political power, religious power. And Paul's ministry demonstrated that the power of the name of the Lord Jesus was stronger than all of them. Somehow that has become forgotten in the American church. That the power of our Lord Jesus is stronger than all of them. And notice what happened in verse 18. Those who pursued power in Ephesus in magical ways, they gave it up. They threw it into the fire so that they could receive something better. You see this in verse 18 and 20. Many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books. They burned them publicly. And when the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. Amazing power. But verse 20, So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. What does it look like for us to give up worldly power? so that we can receive true power from the throne of Jesus. The good news of Jesus caused the Ephesian Christians to become people of both radical submission, but also radical distinction. It was this imaginative third way of living that in Jesus led to the renewal of all things. And that we might experience the same. Let me close with the prayer that Paul prayed over These early Christians in Ephesus from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 through 23. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, who fills all in all, amen.